It would have been fitting if the Curtis Warhawk would have been named the Curtis Warbird, because for many folks, and certainly myself growing up, if you ask them to think of what a Warbird fighter looks like, they would probably instantly think of the image of the Warhawk. There is just something about that big front air scoop with the shark's teeth that makes it iconic and unforgettable. In Steven Spielberg's comedy movie 1942, John Belushi is flying a Warhawk. Back in the 80s, I remember seeing a ridiculous pastel t-shirt with the image on the front of surfers being strafed by a formation of fighters. The caption was, it's pumping outside, and the fighters were, of course, Warhawks. Lastly, when I was a kid, I was given a calendar with large pictures of warbirds for each month. When the year was up, I removed the picture of the P-40, its image filling the frame diagonally, diving in with that fantastic shark's mouth, and I framed it and hanged it on my wall. I kept that poster for over 25 years, even hanging it in my office at work, until the frame basically fell apart and it was time to discard. Before we get into the specific story of the Warhawk, Let's first turn our attention to the P designation that is in the name of the P-40 Warhawk and all other American fighter aircraft of World War II. Why aren't they called Fs, as are the fighter aircraft of today? During the time of the Warbirds, American fighter aircraft of the U.S. Army Air Force were classified as pursuit aircraft, meaning that they were designed to chase and destroy other aircraft, hence the P designation. These type of aircraft were later designated Fs following the birth of the United States Air Force as a separate command of the American military. Bomber designations start with Bs, cargo aircraft start with Cs, and tankers start with Ks, because T was already taken for trainer aircraft. The P-40 was actually an update of an earlier aircraft, the P-36 Hawk, which had been a private venture of the Curtis Aircraft Company. To imagine what it looked like, think of a P-40, but a bit shorter in length, without the big air scoop in the nose, and with a radial engine instead. Actually, the P-36 looks more like a predecessor to the Thunderbolt than the Warhawk. The prototype first flew in 1934. Curtis built a little over a thousand of them, and they were used by several countries, including Brazil and China. Argentina, amazingly, kept some of theirs in service until 1954. The British called the P-36 the Mohawk, and they did assess the type, but found them inferior to their own Spitfires. Although the RAF decided not to buy the Mohawks, at the very beginning of the war they did receive a shipment of several hundred of these aircraft that were supposed to go to the French, but were never delivered as France had already been occupied. The first Warhawk was actually a modified P-36 Hawk with the Pratt & Whitney twin WASP radial engine replaced by a liquid-cooled Allison V-12 engine. Although this engine had basically the same amount of power as the radial, it did have a smaller frontal area, which promised greater streamlining, which in turn would reduce drag and increase speed. As the engine was liquid-cooled, it needed a radiator somewhere, and so, in the beginning at least, the scoop was placed under the belly of the aircraft, just aft of the trailing edge of the wing. The prototype first flew in October 1938. Initially, the test pilot was disappointed with the 315 mile per hour performance of the XP-40, as the experimental aircraft was designated. 
However, Curtis did not give up on the type. They did wind tunnel testing and made adjustments such as incorporating the oil cooler into the air scoop and moving it up to the chin where it would become the major distinguishing feature of the fighter. Although the P-40 is easily recognized by the big radiator and oil scoop below the nose, many folks don't realize that many variants also have a smaller carburetor scoop above the nose. Curtis designers also modified the landing gear doors and exhaust manifold in order to squeeze 55 more miles per hour out of the type, finally achieving 366 miles per hour. In April 1939, the United States Air Corps placed its biggest order ever and asked for 524 P-40s. Another early order came from France for 230 fighters, but these were not built before France had already been knocked out of the war. Once they came out of the factory in Buffalo, New York, these aircraft were then supplied to the British Commonwealth, where they were called Tomahawk 1s. Initially, P-40s were armed with two 30 caliber machine guns in each wing and two short-barreled synchronized 50 caliber machine guns mounted in the nose cowling shooting through the propeller disc. This firepower was found to be inadequate in combat, and later on, with the D variant, the synchronized 50 caliber machine guns were removed from the nose and the 30 caliber guns in the wings were swapped for the 250s in each wing. During the war, many changes were made to the Warhawk. The P-40B had protection added to the fuel system, while demands for more range and combat versatility had drop tank and bomb shackles added to the P-40C. The P-40E had a more powerful engine and thus a larger air scoop to help in cooling the engine. Further requests for more firepower had another 50 caliber machine gun added to each wing, bringing the total to six. The P-40F and L were installed with Packard-built Rolls-Royce Merlin engines. These can be recognized by their lack of carburetor scoops above the nose. As they were considered more stripped down than other P-40 variants, they were sometimes called Gypsy Rose Lees, after the famous burlesque stripper of the time. The P-40s with Merlins performed better at high altitudes which was always the downfall of the Allison engine. The G and K variants had some minor changes and were mainly supplied to the Soviet Union and Commonwealth units. The P-40M had an even more powerful Allison engine and a stretched fuselage to help counter the increased torque. The P-40N was the last production model of the type with a cut down rear fuselage to increase rear visibility. Curtis also built a few experimental variants such as the Q and the twin P-40. The Q had a bubble canopy and a cut down rear fuselage. Unlike all the other P-40s which were installed with a one-speed supercharger and a three-bladed prop, the Q had a four-bladed prop and a two-speed supercharger. If you look at a picture of the Q model, it looks a lot like a later Mustang or Spitfire. Although it was the fastest Warhawk ever, it was not put into production. The strangest looking Warhawk was a single example built with twin engines installed in the wings on top of the landing gear. It looks a little like a British Westland whirlwind. Although the Warhawk may be chiefly remembered for its role in China as the weapon of the famed Flying Tigers, it also served with distinction in Europe and especially in North Africa with the UK's Desert Air Force, where they were brought in to replace Hawker Hurricanes. 
P-40s served with squadrons of many Commonwealth countries, including the Royal Air Force, the South African Air Force, the Royal Australian Air Force, and the Royal Canadian Air Force. The British called their P-40s Tomahawks. However, from the D models onward, they called them Kitty Hawks. British trained pilots did have to get used to the particularities of the P-40, especially in landing. The rear folding landing gear of the P-40 was more liable to collapse than that of the Spitfire or Hurricane, and pilots had to learn how to do a main gear first type landing rather than a three-point landing that they had been used to. P-40s did a good chunk of the fighting in the desert, where at low altitudes they were considered equal or slightly superior to the BF-109s and the Italian Fiat G-50s and the Machi C-200s and the Machi C-202 Folgari that were their main opponents. The P-40 was well suited to the tough conditions of the desert. Its sturdy construction could handle operations from rough airstrips and was strong enough to absorb much high-G aerobatics and battle damage and bring its pilot home. There were even reports of P-40s surviving mid-air collisions and even deliberate ramming attacks. It was constructed in a semi-modular manner, which meant that it was easier to maintain in the field. One place where the P-40 was not to be found was at high altitudes in the skies of northwestern Europe. Due to the limitations of the single-stage, low-altitude rated supercharger, the P-40's engine just didn't have the power and thus the performance above 15,000 feet to compete. These altitudes were the domains of the Spitfires and later the Mustangs. However, where the P-40 has earned its place in aviation history and mythology is in China with the Flying Tigers, which was officially known as the first American volunteer group. AVG. The Flying Tigers initially received P-40B models, which they did not like. The planes came equipped with no radios or capacity to carry extra fuel in drop tanks. The leader of the Flying Tigers, Colonel Claire Chenault, was skeptical about using the P-40. He worried that liquid-cooled engines would be too vulnerable. One bullet in the cooling system would mean that the engine was finished. He also realized the limitations of the lack of a turbo supercharger. Finally, the P-40 was just not as maneuverable as its light and nimble Japanese foes, the Nakajima KI-27 Kate and Mitsubishi A6M Zero. Some even thought that the Flying Tigers were getting the P-40 because nobody else wanted it. Now seems as good a time as any to take a slight detour to talk about pronunciations. Firstly, as I am recording this podcast in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, where there is a significant French population, I have always assumed that the good colonel's name was pronounced in the French manner, Chenot. However, in researching this episode, I have learned that, being an American, the colonel's family pronounced it in the Americanized way, Chenault. While we're on the subject of pronunciations, I will now issue a blanket and general apology right now for butchering any non-English terminology in this episode or any other. I will do my best, but some of the warbird terminology out there, especially the German, is honestly quite a mouthful. Now, let's get back to our main story. Although the P-40 had its faults, Colonel Chenault saw that the P-40 had some advantages. It was ruggedly built and had armor and self-sealing fuel tanks, it was well-armed and faster in a dive than its Japanese opponents. 
Chenault was able to use the aircraft's pluses to good advantage and encouraged his pilots to use boom and zoom tactics, hitting the enemy hard and then diving to get away without engaging in slow-speed dogfights where the P-40 was less maneuverable and thus at a disadvantage. One of the main problems for the Flying Tigers was supply. Firstly, as the AVG was not technically part of the United States military, the aircraft were shipped to China without government-furnished material, such as gun sights, guns, or radios. These had to be scrounged and added in the field. In China, the AVG was at the end of a very long and precarious supply tail, and spare parts and replacement aircraft were always in short supply. Interestingly enough, although the Flying Tigers are often thought of as the first ones to paint the shark's teeth on the noses of their aircraft, it was actually copied from number 112 squadron of the Royal Air Force. They were flying P-40s in the desert of North Africa, and they had copied the idea of the shark's teeth from the Luftwaffe's Zesta Ragerschwade 76, who had painted it on the noses of their Messerschmitt Bf-110s. The Flying Tigers began combat operations 12 days after Pearl Harbor, and were a welcome boost to sagging American morale at that point in the war. In the end, they destroyed 296 enemy aircraft while losing only 12 of their own pilots. Eventually, the AVG was inducted back into the United States Army Air Force. Although many considered the P-40 to be inadequate and even obsolete at the start of the war, initially much of the fighting was done by this type of aircraft. As the newer Lockheed P-38 Lightning, the Republic P-47 Thunderbolt, and the North American P-51 Mustang came online, many units converted to these from their P-40s. P-40s served with many nations, including the Soviet Union, which received several hundred through Lend-Lease. The Soviets had mixed feelings about the P-40s. Being fairly desperate for equipment, they were certainly glad to get whatever aircraft they got. However, they did not consider the P-40 to be the best. One thing that they didn't like was the underpowered engine. This problem was compounded in their efforts to try and squeeze more power out of the engine. Soviet pilots were known to shove the throttle to the wartime emergency setting and keep it there. This led to engines quickly getting burned out. It didn't help that the fuel and oil supplies that the Soviets were using to service the engines were not of the same quality or purity that the Allison engines were used to. Soviet pilots considered the P-40 to be better than the Hawker Hurricane, although not as good as their own Yak-1s. There are some types of warbirds that are very difficult to get to see in person. The P-40 is not one of them. There are many examples of surviving P-40s, either in the process of restoration or on display, and many of them are airworthy. The UK has at least three flying examples, and the US has almost 30. I have personally seen the airworthy P-40 Kitty Hawk at Vintage Wings of Canada in Gatineau, Quebec. It is painted in the Desert Air Force markings of RAF 260 Squadron to honor Canadian pilot Wing Commander James Stocky Edwards. James Francis Edwards was born on June 5, 1921, near Nakoma, Saskatchewan. The second of six children, the basic story of his youth is fairly typical for a Canadian boy of the era. Going to school, being a hockey fan, having a job delivering milk. However, Whatever Edwards did always seemed to be just a little bit better than usual, this trend continuing on into his wartime flying career and beyond. 
He hunted and was known as an excellent shot with a rifle. He didn't just play hockey. He was considered good enough to be NHL material, and he actually passed up a tryout with the Chicago Blackhawks in order to enlist with the Royal Canadian Air Force in June 1940. He went through the British Commonwealth Training Plan, earning his wings one year later in June 1941. After continuing his training in England, he was posted to North Africa and began flying P-40 Kitty Hawks with 94 Squadron Royal Air Force. On March 23, 1942, on his very first sortie, Edwards bagged a BF-109. He went on to rack up at least 17 kills while with the squadron, including bringing down the Luftwaffe ace Otto Schultz. Although previously he had been known by friends and family as Jimmy, during the war, Edwards picked up the nickname Stocky, which meant tough or plucky, and which certainly fit. Edwards went on to fly Spitfires and Hawker Tempests in the Italian campaign and in Europe, getting several more kills, although the majority of his victories were won in P-40s. At the war's end, he was a highly decorated wing commander and continued on in the Royal Canadian Air Force after the war, flying Vampires, Sabres, and CF-100s, finally retiring in 1972 with the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. At the time of the recording of this podcast, Stocky Edwards is still alive at the age of 98, and on September 19, 2009, actually flew in, in quotations, his P-40, which has been equipped for dual flight. The story of that flight was published in the Vintage News, which is the newsletter of the Vintage Wings of Canada. I was originally going to just read excerpts from the article, but upon reflection, I'm going to read the whole thing, because it beautifully transports us back to this air show in 2009, takes us into the cockpit of this remarkable plane with a living legend and describes what it is like to fly a warbird in an air show and on a photography flight with a Harvard, which is also another warbird. The writer is Dave Hatfield, who is a Canadian airline pilot, singer-songwriter, author, wilderness adventurer, and classic boat sailor. And before you ask, yes, he is the brother of astronaut and David Bowie covering musician Chris Hadfield. Four fighters in a lank, three o'clock low, I call to the man in the back seat. Got him, was the reply. It was an exchange that was familiar to World War II ace James F. Stocky Edwards. The airplane he was sitting in was an old friend. The stick felt comfortable in his hand. The words coming through the headset were well-known phrases. The silhouettes in the distance, a part of his past, but the time and the place were new. The green fields of the Ottawa Valley lay under the wings, and 65 years had passed since the last time he flew a Curtis P-40 Kitty Hawk. The guy up front was new too, me, a Sprague fighter pilot. There may be 20,000 hours of time in my logbook, but only 25 of them are in fighters. That makes me a 25-hour pilot. Stocky paid me the supreme compliment of being willing to sit in the back while I got the airplane off the earth and hopefully back onto it again in one piece. And the airplane was new. Some parts of the original structure, airframe 42-104827, a P-40N1, 
Kitty Hawk 4, in the Allies' parlance, remained. But the structural members, hauling us through the sky and supporting the Allison V-1719-81A engine's 1,350 horsepower, were fresh and strong. It didn't look new, though. The airplane bore no glassy paint, no metal flake trim stripes or punning slogans. It wore RAF 260 Squadron colors, exactly as Stocky's Mount in the Western Desert, 1942, had. The camouflage patterns, the slapped-on squadron markings, replicated to perfection. Other than the fact that it was not scratched by rough flying boots, etched by desert sand, marked by soot from a straining engine, and smoke from oft-fired guns, it looked like it had stepped right out of an old photograph, ready for a mission. And we had a mission today, slotted into the flight program for the September Vintage Wings Open House, and a first-rate air show at Gatineau Airport, was our departure for a photo flight in formation with the Foundation's High Flight Harvard, CFROA. Pilot John Aiken and I had briefed for a tour of Ottawa, hoping for good air-to-air shots with the Parliament buildings in the background. Renowned aviation photographer Eric Dummigan was in the Harvard back seat. I was lead, and all the airspace boundaries were rattling around in my head and the frequencies written on the back of my hand. When display pilots have a quick, nervous one, just before their flight, they only wash their palms. After that, who could say? Stocky had explicitly told me that he had no wish to fly the airplane, that he would just be a happy passenger. But I had other ideas. Stocky is 88. He is the highest-scoring, surviving Canadian fighter pilot. An icon a champion of the western desert, the hawk of Martuba, and the way into the back seat of a P-40 is torturous. I was somewhat concerned. I had no wish to break any irreplaceable bones. Thus I had ladders and planks and volunteers lined up to smooth him into place. But all for nothing. Stocky spry, nimble form hopped up on the wing, vaulted over the cockpit rim, and squeezed into place ready to go. He was particular about having his parachute in place properly and his beautiful leather kidskin gloves handy. The perspex overhead made it a greenhouse under the airshow sun, but Stocky sat cool and collected, focused on my egress briefing, ready to go. Big smile and thumb up to the crowd beside the wing. The Allison started easily. As Warbird engines go, it's a jewel. We have only the inertial starter in it, no continuous cranking and thus we only get about four blades per attempt, but it leapt into life the way we've come to expect. John was ready in the Harvard. We warmed up, ran up, did the checks, and taxied out in trail. The takeoff was standard, standard that is, for a one-armed P-40 paper hanger. Raising the gear involves hitting the brakes, releasing a trigger, moving the gear lever up, holding the hydraulic pump switch on the stick on with your pinky, easing back the manifold pressure and the revs, retrimming elevator and retrimming rudder, switching hands on the stick, vigorously pumping the standby hydraulic lever, switching hands again, lever back to neutral, and shutters cowl flaps to combat climb. Then you look around and see where you got to. 
and notice you've exceeded the briefed rejoin speed by 30 miles per hour. Oops! Way back on the manifold pressure. Pitch back to 1800. Retrim all over again. Gentle right 360 overhead to let the Harvard, which hasn't come back on anything, slide in. And it happens. John's a pro. Cuts the corner perfectly, and it only takes a minute. He's in. We exchange glances. He nods. Okay, Stocky? Fine, Dave. Then it's talk to Terminal, who switches us to Tower, who changes our transponder code, and as I'm fiddling with this stuff, I glance up and the windshield is filled with Canada geese. At least a hundred of them. Ack! I can't just stuff the stick forward. I'm leading a formation. I have time for a geese geese descending, and we push over to miss them. By the time we're level, we've lost 400 feet. Tower comes on the horn and starts giving me grief. I waste no time sorting that out. One short, pungent sentence and pull back up to our assigned altitude, eyeballs scanning everywhere. John has stuck to me like glue, 20 feet away. Okay, the mission. Below us and to the left is Parliament. The old grey stone and green copper roofs contrast beautifully with the blue of the Ottawa River and the glass and steel of the downtown office buildings. I roll gently into a slight left turn, trying to arrange it so we circle at the right distance. But at no time do I want to adjust by turning into my wingman. Eric slides the hood back in the rear of the Harvard, his long lens coming up. John moves in closer. I thought he was tight before. I concentrate on flying very, very steadily. At one point, as Eric urges him to move up a bit, I can hear the prop tips of the Harvard roar above the noise of my own engine. Harvard's ain't stealth. Two slow-turning, endless, complete circuits, and we roll level pointing east. The river extends in front of us like a deep blue highway. In no time, we've gone by Rockcliffe, by Gatineau, and break free into the uncluttered sky southeast of the field. Now we can play. John takes suggestions from Eric and moves the Harvard around, seeking different camera angles. I just sit there, being shot. A quick glance back shows Stocky glancing at the Harvard, studying the ground. There's a thoughtful expression on his face, calm, yet his eyes never rest for long on one target. Who can tell what he's thinking? I decide not to intrude. I concentrate on the airplane. The pitch and the manifold pressure are way back. We're indicating 125 miles per hour. It's a bit nose-up and uncomfortable. The coolant is below the green arc, but I've already got the shutters nearly closed. I've never heard this low-pitched thrum from the engine and props before. But it's smooth enough. Gas is fine, but taking advantage of a nice long hayfield underneath us, just in case, I switch to the forward small wing tank to save the main tank for later. Betty Boop, the mascot in the glare shield that appeared one day last June as if by magic, courtesy of Angela Gagnon, Kitty Hawk crew chief, who understands these things, faces forward and admires the brilliant fall day. Your turn, Dave, advises John. Eric wants some action shots. I've been waiting for this. John holds the Harvard steady and I cavort beside it. I haul the nose up and bank away and then turn in. I keep the bright yellow airplane clearly in sight, keep the rate of closer gentle, but display the kitty hawk for the camera, back and forth, up and down, roll left and right. 
I have a huge reserve of power and speed, and can only move forward at a mere squeeze of the throttle. Been a while since I've done this, Dave, says the voice in the back. I recognize the tone. I've used it often enough myself. Time to move to the next item. John announces the photos are complete and kisses off. Eric waving. The shining yellow airplane peels away in classic fashion, rapidly diminishing in the direction of home. Now we are free to do as we like. I employ a subterfuge. Uh, Take her for a sec, will you, Stocky? I gotta change freaks. I have control, comes the calm voice from the back, and the stick wiggles a bit to make sure I'm off it. Ha, I think to myself. He was waiting for that. I switch to the airboss frequency and hear the Lancaster and a number of fighters. The radio is busy. They're rehearsing the flypass for tomorrow's Battle of Britain display. I've lost track of who's going where and when. I could go back and try to squeeze in, but on the other hand, why rush? We've got a gorgeous day, a smooth running engine, and the low power settings have preserved our fuel. Lots left. And Stocky and I may never have this chance again. Hell, we'll wait until they're done. Kind of busy back there, Stocky. What say we just stooge around out here and enjoy the view? Okay with me, Dave. I glance back, smiling. Sure enough, he looks like a kid in a toy store. And so we enjoy about a half an hour of pure flying. No agenda, no taskings, pure enjoyment. I ease the throttle up so we indicate about 190 miles per hour. She handles better at this speed but still only sips the gas. For a fighter, about 32 U.S. gallons per hour under these conditions in auto lean. I direct Stocky with a few brief hand signals to keep clear of traffic. He responds immediately, and we roll smoothly into the turns. I'm impressed by the way the ball stays right in the middle. I mention a target altitude, and we immediately move to it and stay there. It takes him about 30 seconds to sort of feel out the airplane. He asks, where's the rudder trim? I reply that there isn't one back there, only up front with me, and what would he like? And he asks for a bit of left, and a bit of nose down. What a delight. He's tuned in, and he's on target, and he's 88. The big Allison rumbles gently. The hayfields slip by. I see more geese and call them out to Stocky. He moves easily around them. I hear Tim Leslie on the VHF asking, where are we? He's in the Mustang, waiting until the Lank flight lands and wants to remain clear of us. We sort out some airspace, I'll stay south of the river, and he'll stay north. Do we do hard-ass fighter stuff? Yank and bank and gray out on the turns? Split S's and pull-throughs and victory rolls? Nah, he's done all that. Instead, here's a chance for a wise and experienced pilot, a consummate aviator and a famous veteran of the greatest generation, to commune once again with the airplane of his youth. This is the airplane that first revealed to him his gifts, his wondrous shooting ability, and his ability to keep track of who's moving where in the predatory chaos of a dogfight. He was 20. He was inexperienced, essentially untrained in gunnery, but he could make the most marvelous high-deflection shots and actually connect with the target. He seemed to be able to predict where the target would be, like Gretzky in a scrum and make the one deadly burst from the 650s right there beside us and get away. He was so successful that he was embarrassed to come back into the debriefing tent in the desert and make his claims when his much more experienced flight commanders and squadron leaders had scored nothing. 
So we weave lazily over the Ottawa Valley. Only once do I see a hint of what he was. At one point, a Cessna 172 comes trundling up from Montreal. We're nearly on a collision course, but he's about 200 feet lower. I call to Stocky to turn over top of him, keeping him in view until he's passed. Stocky acknowledges, then banks the airplane in a smooth, flowing curve that exactly arrives over the Cessna as we pass. The intercept was perfect. It was unthinking. We were in total control of the situation every second, and the ball never left the middle. It seemed effortless. It made me think. But beauty never lasts, except in memory. The lank flight has finally landed, and it's time for us to go home. I vector us westward, and Stocky gently descends. I switch back to the main tank, leaving the boost pump on. I talk to the air boss, and we're cleared for an overhead break. Got the field, Stocky? I moved over to one side as much as I can so he can see forward. Yes. Line up on final, and I'll take over for the break. Okay. And he flies us right down the pavement. I take over and at midfield haul us hard up and to the right. Once again, I do the one-armed P-40 paper hanger drill and get the gear and flap down. Gump check. Speeds are 120 miles per hour by the end of the downwind. And then an arcing continuous descending turn to arrive over the numbers. 110 miles per hour at the 90 degree point. 100 over the fence. Check back for a sec as the throttle is moving to idle and the Kitty Hawk touches on the mains, tail low. Hold it there with a gentle forward pin, wait and do nothing, and control yaw by feel and a bit of peripheral vision. Keep her straight. The airplane is well-mannered on the ground, but I know from fast taxiing that a swerve, once started, would be very difficult to stop. The tailwheel settles, and I let her roll. The brakes are vintage hydraulic expander tube, and I'd like them to last. It gets hot fast with the hood closed. I let the airplane swing around at the end of the roll, straighten with a squeeze of brake, and then roll the canopy back. All of a sudden, lots of breeze and stink of the V-12 exhaust. Carefully, thinking about it, quite deliberately, I select the flaps up. The flap lever is right beside the gear lever, and confusion would be unfortunate. Rad shutters wide open, electrics off, very nice Dave. Thank you to Dave Hadfield and the folks at Vintage Wings in Gatineau for their article. Thank you also to Eleanor Florence for her article, Stocky Edwards, Fighter Ace, Family Man. Check out her website at www.eleanorflorence.com, which is interesting for anyone who loves the past. Please check out the World of Warbirds Facebook page, where I'll post some pictures of the aircraft included in this episode, and you can join in on the discussion.